You're listening to Qalam Institute's podcast. Visit us on the web at qalaminstitute.org and join us on Facebook at facebook.com slash qalaminstitute. Bismillah, walhamdulillah, wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Inshallah, we're going to be continuing on our series with, uh, on our series talking about the seerah, the life of the Prophet ﷺ, the prophetic biography. In the previous session, we talked about in detail about the situation and the circumstances of the Arab society before the Prophet ﷺ. And I explained the purpose of that. You can consider it a type of an introduction, but I think it's beyond an introduction. I think it's intricately and intimately connected to the actual study of the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ himself because you can only fully appreciate the work of the Prophet ﷺ and his accomplishments and his achievements and his sacrifices when you fully understand the full context of the time, the era, the culture, the economic condition, the politics, and even the religion of the people and the region and the time period in which the Prophet ﷺ was sent with this divine message and this divine responsibility of preaching the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to all of humanity and reintroducing mankind to Allah. So we talked about the uh, social, political, cultural, economic conditions of pre-Islamic Arabian society. This week what we will primarily be talking about because this is the thing that is the most directly connected to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and that is we'll be talking about the religion of the Arabs before the Prophet ﷺ. The religion of pre-Arabian society and their religious condition and spiritual affairs. So one thing that needs to be understood is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an, actually in Surah Yasin, which was mid-Makkan revelation, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet sallallahu and, and I'll bring this up again towards the end of today's session. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala told the Prophet sallallahu alayhi that you have been sent to warn, to warn a people. And I, I believe I explained the meaning of this, but the Prophet sallallahu is defined and described as being nadir, in the... That was one of the key responsibilities. And in fact, one of the very first things that, uh, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala commanded the Prophet ﷺ to do, and that was in dar, qum fa'andir, stand up and warn. Alright, warn the closest of your family members and your tribes people. So, but what does it mean to warn? It wasn't just go and frighten them, go and scare them. But the meaning of indhar is to warn someone of imminent danger. To warn someone of some danger, to warn someone of some type of danger that is, uh, to warn someone of something that is very dangerous and something that um, is approaching. Something that is of a realistic threat to the person, is a, is a realistic threat to a person. And why are you warning that person? So kind of like if somebody's walking along a path and there's a ditch up ahead. So why are you warning this person of that ditch? Even First of all, there's a ditch right on their path. So it's only a matter of time until that person falls in that ditch. Secondly, why are you warning that person? You're warning them out of sincere, honest compassion and concern for that person. So to warn someone of some imminent danger out of care, compassion, love, and concern for that person. That is the meaning of the word indhar and the Prophet ﷺ was a nadir. So Allah tells him, لِتُنذِرَ We sent you so that you could warn. And you could watch out. You could tell these people to look out. قَوْمًا A people, مَا أُنذِرَ آبَاؤُهُمْ Their forefathers had not been warned. No warning had come to their forefathers. فَهُمْ غَافِلُونَ That's why you find these people so completely heedless. You find these people so completely careless about the message that you are presenting to them. So the Prophet ﷺ, he came at a time where guidance, revelation, the warning, the message had not come to these people for a very, very long time. They had been without any type of spiritual awareness for a very, very long period of time. Having said that, at the same time to process and understand the history of these people and where they came from, monotheism, the worship of one Allah, the Prophet ﷺ was not the first one to bring this message to these people. This message had come to these people a long time ago through messengers like Hud who came to the people of Ad, to the people of Thamud, 
by Salih alayhi salam, Shu'ayb alayhi salam. These were all messengers that had been sent to the Arabs, who were from the Arabs. At the same time, we know that Ibrahim alayhi salam had come and had settled his family there in that region, and that was the founding of that entire, the, the, the society that was present there. So Ismail alayhi salam and his followers and his children and his people were followers of the proper true message of the worship of one Allah. That existed, there's no doubt about that fact. But what happened was, after some time, after some time had passed, idolatry, the worshiping of idols was introduced amongst this society. And one of the key people who introduced the worship of idols amongst this, this, this area, this region of Hijaz and the inhabitants of the city of Mecca was a man by the name of Amr bin Luhay. Amr bin Luhay. He was the very first one to introduce this worship of idols amongst his people. He was a leader of his tribe and he was also a traveler. He was a very cultured person. So he was very knowledgeable, he was very cultured. He was seen as a leader and he was a traveler. He would travel wide, you know, to, to all far different parts of the world, different societies and civilizations at that time. He ended up traveling to Syria, Bilad al-Sham. When he traveled to the, the region of Asham at that time, he found them worshiping certain idols. So what he did was he brought back an idol from there to his people and said, this is how the people of that area they worship. All right, and they claim to be adherents and followers of previous prophets and good righteous people just like we are, but they worship these idols. And I think it's a good idea for us. And he brings back this idol and brings it to his people and his people, because he's a leader of his people, they look up to him, they follow him, they started worshiping this idol. Not only that, but from there, once it got, it started to settle into the culture, the lives, the, the spirituality of these people, they kept making more and more idols. They kept bringing more and more idols from different parts of the world at that time. So much so something very interesting, and this goes back to part of the uh, a historical gem, uh, from the Qur'an. This goes to uncovering a gem, a historical gem of the Qur'an is that it's mentioned within the narrations, but actually a hadith of Bukhari tells us that Amr bin Luhay, he was led by a jinn. He was led by a jinn, a troublemaker, he was led by a jinn to the area that we know as current day Jeddah. And this jinn led him there and showed him where certain idols were buried. And he started digging there and he uncovered idols, five idols. He uncovered five idols. And these idols were the same idols that the followers of, that, excuse me, the people of Nuh alayhi salam used to worship. When Nuh alayhi salam came to his people and he told them, don't worship these idols, worship on Allah alone. There were five key idols that they used to worship. He, he uncovered, he dug up these five idols and brought them to his people and they started worshiping them. Alright, and what were these five idols? They are the same five idols that are mentioned by name in Surah Nur. They are the same five idols that are worshipped, that are mentioned, excuse me, by name in Surah Nur by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that the people, they, they objected to Nuh alayhi salam. And they said, وَقَالُوا لَا تَذَرُونَ آلِهَتَكُمْ Don't stop worshipping your idols. Don't leave your idols. وَلَا تَذَرُونَ And do not leave waddan, وَلَا سُبَاعًا وَلَا يَغُوثًا وَيَعُوقًا وَنَسْرًا Don't leave these idols. Don't stop worshipping these idols. And something very interesting, a question that some, of, some people pose, some people ask is that, why are these five idols mentioned by name? What is the relevance? Why mention them by name? What is the significance of their mention? Well, the significance of their mention is number one, that these are five idols that the Arabs used to actively worship. All right? And these were uncovered very early on and were, very, were some of the key idols, were some of the first idols that the Arabs, they started worshiping. Alright, not only that, but something else very interesting, the reason why Allah mentions these five idols, among all the hundreds of idols that were worshipped in Arabian society, and Allah mentions them here in Surah Nuh, is because these five idols were, were uncovered by Amr bin Luhay. And he was told about these five idols by a jinn. And what is the next surah in the Qur'an that comes right after Surah Nuh? It is Surah Al-Jinn. So because of that very, very beautiful connection, Allah mentions these five idols by name in the Qur'an, and then it tells us about the jinn. Nevertheless, this is 
this was exactly what was going on in Arabian society at that time. That you had earlier, you had an adherence, you had following of monotheism. The message of Ismail and even the prophets before him, alayhim salam. Later on, idolatry has now been introduced into the people of that time, of that area and that region. And they started worshipping idols. So, idol worshipping, which is referred to oftentimes as paganism, alright, this type of pagan idol worshipping became widespread and literally became the predominant form of worship, spirituality of the people in that region. However, there were certain people, there were certain people at that time who held on to worshipping, or, or rather before I go there, before I explain that. So idol worshipping was the predominant feature, was the primary mode of spirituality in that region and at that time before the Prophet Now what about the other religions? What about Christianity and Judaism? Because we know that the other major empires of that time were Christian and Jewish empires. Well what about that? Well, what was going on with them? Were those, did those religions ever play any type of a part? Did they ever have any presence within pre-Islamic Arabian society? So the answer is yes, but very, very minimally. Yes, they did play a part, they did have a presence, but a very, very small, minority, minimal presence. They were marginalized. I talked about in last week's session how some of the key kingdoms and empires that existed at that time that were neighboring um, Arabian society at that time, they, were, they had major Christian and Jewish influences. But nevertheless, were na those were neighboring regions. But within the Arabian Peninsula, within the area, the region of Al-Hijaz, Christianity and Judaism played a very, very minor role. It only represented a very, very small minority within that region and within that area. For instance, you had very, very few, Christ Christianity for the most part was very scattered. You had neighboring regions like we talked about last time to the north, the kingdom of what is today, Bilad, uh, what was classically referred to as Bilad al-Sham and the Hassanid Empire, the Hassanid kings were present there and they were pretty much an extension of the Roman Empire. So those were Christian influenced areas. You also had tribes of Jews, which we talked about last time, that had migrated to the interior part of the Arabian Peninsula and they settled down and they settled their tribes there. And while they were very well established themselves for economic reasons and due to certain uh, political and cultural influences, they had a very, very strong culture. And they, for the most part, they would isolate themselves culturally. They were not a missionary religion. They wouldn't actively preach and seek out converts and try to convert people to their religion. So that you had pockets of certain tribes that were Jewish that lived amongst them. But for the most part, they were, like I said earlier, they were mainly very, very isolated. And they didn't play a major part, nor did they, did they find a great uh, acceptance. People did not convert, mainly because that was not the, that was not the primary motive of many of the uh, Christian and Jewish people that lived at that time. However, at the same time, one thing that's very interesting that we find for the, about the religion of the Arabs is that the worship of idols, all right? And one thing that needs to be understood is that Within this idol worshipping of, of Arabian society at that time, even though they worshipped idols, they had a very strange structure of worshipping idols. They still worshipped and they still believed in Allah. And when I say that, that sounds very contradictory. No, but they still believed that Allah was the supreme God, was the supreme deity. And they, they acknowledged Him. And they believed in Him. And they even worshipped Him. What their compromise or what their perverse approach to religion was, was that they had all these idols erected and they believed, as the Quran tells us, illa We do not worship these idols except as connections, as intermediaries, as something and someone that connects us back to Allah. That's how we worship them, that's why we worship them. So they worship these idols. And they thought that each idol had its own influence. But they believed these idols to be intermediaries, 
to connect them back to Allah. That we only worship these idols to connect us back to Allah. And that's what they believed, or that's at least what they claimed. Alright? And something else that we find very interesting was the specific idols that they would worship. The idol that I named before, Wad, was worshipped by Banu Kal bin Murrah. Suwa was worshipped by the Banu Hudayl, which was at a place called Rihat, which was about a three days journey from Mecca. You had people worshipping the idol of Yahuth, which were located, uh, was worshipped by Banu An'am. Uh, from the tribe of Atay. You had the, the idol Banu Khaywan, which was worshipped by the Hamdani people. You had the idol Nasr, which was worshipped by the Qabila of Dhilkila, which was in the region of Himyar. So you had all these different idols being worshipped in these different regions and at these different uh, parts of Arabian society at that time. Something else that was very interesting was there were certain idols that they saw as more important than these other little idols that they had. What they would do with these idols was they would set, the, they had established them at different parts of Arabian society at that time. And what they would do is they would not only worship them, but they would almost, if you will, construct like a mini Kaaba around them. They would consider these places to be other key, very important strategic places where they would worship these idols. Almost as branches, satellite locations of the main Kaaba. All the idols would be gathered together in the Kaaba, but they would take a few idols, they would place them strategically around in different parts of Hijaz, in different parts of Arabian society at that time, and they would consider them to be satellite locations for the Kaaba. For instance, Allah tells us in the Quran, in Surah Al-Najm, which is very early revelation, Allah tells us, that do you not see Allah and Al-Uzza and then Nawat, Al-Thalitha Al-Ukhra, the third Nawat. Alright? Well, Allah was worshipped by the people of Thaqif at the place of Al-Ta'if. Uzza was worshipped by at a region called Nakhla, which was very near Mecca itself. Manat was worshipped at the place of Yathrib by the tribes of Aws and Khazraj, which later on became Medina. At the same time, you had Dhul Khasla which was another idol that was worshipped by the tribe of Adaus. Alright? And, and that idol that was worshipped there, they had built a little place, a holy sanctuary around it, that they would call Al-Kaaba Al-Yamaniya. Al-Kaaba Al-Yamaniya. Alright? Similarly, there was an idol by the, by the name of Falas, which was worshipped by the people of Tay. And again, they had... They had constructed, they had built a sanctuary around it. There was another idol by the name of Ri'am, which was worshipped at the place of Himyar and by the people of Yemen. And again, they had built a sanctuary, a place of worship around it. Another idol by the name of Rada, which was worshipped by, by Banu Rabi'ah. And yet there was another sanctuary, a place of worship, which was called Dhul Ka'bat. Dhul Ka'bat. Alright, which was worshipped by the people of Banu Bikr and Banu Taghlib. So what's very interesting is that these people started to indulge. The, point, the, the, the key point that I'm trying to make is these people were just not randomly worshipping idols. Alright? There was like this, this effort to replicate the same um, vibe, the same dynamic that existed, that was present in terms of the Kaaba. They knew the Kaaba in Mecca was very sacred. This was hollowed land, this was sacred land, it was a sacred place, it was a sacred construction, and this was a place where they worshipped the supreme being, the supreme God, Allah. But now you had them indulging into the worship of idols, where yes, they had hundreds of idols there within the Kaaba itself. There's a narration in the Musad of Imam Ahmad, which mentions that when the Prophet ﷺ came, at Fatih Mecca, the conquest of Mecca, there were over 360 idols present in the Kaaba at that time. So yes, they worshipped hundreds of other idols there in the, within the Kaaba. They, had, they would have idols within their homes, that they would worship within their homes. But not just that, people of different regions, different tribes, had taken one of the larger idols, one of the bigger idols, one of the more important idols, like Lat and Uzza and Manat. Alright? They took these idols, 
They placed them there, and then they built a holy sanctuary around that idol. So it's like they were trying to replicate the same vibe of Al-Kaaba in different parts of their society at that time. And they would consider them as mini-Kaaba, as satellite locations of the Kaaba. And there's even narrations in the Musad of Imam Ahmad which mention the fact, and many of the books of Sirah talk about this fact, that they would even start to do tawaf around these places. So you see this slow perversion it was like a deterioration of their spirituality, their religion. That, okay, first you worship Allah. Then they started taking idols. Then what they did was they developed super, bigger idols. So not, they didn't see these idols as supreme as Allah Himself, but nevertheless they were just a tier lower than them. So they started building second tier deities and gods. Not only that, but then they said, okay, for Allah you have the Kaaba as the key house of Allah. So what do we need to do? We need to build sanctuaries around these second tier gods. So they started building sanctuaries and said, okay, people journey to go visit the Kaaba, the Hajj, and people go there and do tawaf around the Kaaba. So what do we need to do? We need to replicate that. So now let's build a sanctuary. People in this region can visit these sanctuaries and then they can also start to do tawaf and make different types of offerings to these sanctuaries as well. So you get this complete perversion, this complete spiritual um, decaying occurring within these people. A total complete spiritual deterioration that was going on at that time in this society and among these people. At the same time, what started to happen was whenever you have this type of a, uh, of a spiritual deterioration, complete spiritual decayance occurring amongst people, what you also have is then their daily practices start to become affected. Then superstition, then superstition and all types of other issues start to arise within these people. Evil omens, superstitions. All right, attaching of spiritual significance to different items and different things that are not warranted, that are not legit, legitimate. That started to happen. And we know about this as well, that when the Prophet ﷺ came, because the Qur'an talks about this, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in the Qur'an, He condemns this practice, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us about things like um, Bahira, Sa'iba, Wasila in Ham, that these are practices that are not sanctioned, that are not legitimate, that should not be indulged in, in any way, shape, or form. And what were these things? That Allah says in, in Surah, I believe it is in Surah Al Ma'idah. In Surah Al Ma'idah, in ayah number 103, Allah tells us about these things that Allah has not sanctioned, Allah has not approved, Allah has not instituted. All right, things like Bahira. What was Bahira? They would take a she camel and the milk of the she camel was considered off limits. Nobody could drink, nobody could take, nobody could benefit from the milk of the she camel because the milk of the she camel was solely designated, why? For the idols. All the milk that would come from the she camel would be taken and would be presented to the idols as a form of an offering. This practice existed amongst the pre-Islamic Arabs. There was another practice of Sa'iba. What was Sa'iba? Sa'iba was a she camel that would be let loose and nobody was allowed to touch it. You could not eat it, meaning you could not sacrifice it, you could not eat it. You could not ride it, you could not use it for transportation, it was marked. And that's it. This she camel was to roam freely and it was dedicated to the gods, to the idols. Nobody could touch it, nobody could benefit it, benefit from it in any way, shape, or form. Alright? There was another practice called Wasila. What was Wasila? Wasila would be a she camel, alright, which again was set free for the idols, and this she camel would be, uh, or, or rather, some of the historians tell us that the Wasila would be the offspring of the Sa'iba. So any she-camel that was a Sa'iba that would breed and that would then have any type of children, any offspring, all right? Though that offspring would be dedicated as wasila. That was the offspring of a sacred she-camel, so they would be sacred automatically as well. And then there was Ham. Ham was a male camel, all right, that would be used for any work that the idols needed. So you have to carry something to take it to the idols then you would use that specific camel. Or that, uh, that male camel would also be used to breed with the Sa'iba to give birth to the Wasila. Basically, to summarize, they would take animals, they would mark them, and they would specify them solely for the service of the idols. 
Dedicate them to the idols. So these practices existed. These type of superstitious practices practices were existent, were present amongst the pre-Islamic Arabs. And we even have narrations. We even have a hadith from the Prophet ﷺ, where the Prophet ﷺ tells us that the very first one to institute a lot of these types of practices amongst the Arabs was the same person was the same person, uh, Amr bin Luhay. He was the very first one to start practicing these things and bring these practices to the pre-Islamic Arabs. There's a hadith in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad where the Prophet says, That the very first person to alter, to change the deen of Ismail was that Amr bin Luhay individual. There are other narrations from the books of Sirah which say, He's the one that came and erected the idols for the people to start worshipping. He's the first one to designate a she-camel for the milk of the idols. He was the first one to mark a she-camel and say, this she-camel is designated for the gods. He was the very first one to designate that any child, any offspring that will come from this camel will also be dedicated to the gods, to the idols. And he was also the first one to designate a male camel, again, for the service and the breeding of the she-camels. Why? as an offering to the gods, to the idols. So all of these practices, unfortunately, were present amongst the Arabs in pre-Islamic Arabian society. Another very unfortunate practice that was a part of the religion of the Arabs before Islam, before the Prophet ﷺ was, there was, when they had to make major decisions, they would basically gamble. They would chance, gambling was a way that they would make decisions. They would launch arrows, they would shoot arrows. And they would maybe mark the arrows. This arrow is for this decision, that, is, that arrow is for that decision, and then they would shoot the arrows. Whichever arrow struck first or struck the target, that was a decision that the gods had made for us. All right, Or they would take an arrow and they would launch it. And based on what direction it would go in or where it would land, where it would fall, Based on that, they would make a decision. Another superstitious practice amongst the Arabs, pre-Islamically, was that they would take a bird. And they would take a bird and they would fly it. Literally like release it. And based on what direction that bird would fly in, that would determine what the decision was. What needed to be done at that time. So if it goes right or it goes east, then this is what we need to do. If it goes west, then that's what we need to do. All right? These were all superstitious practices that were present at that time. Among many, many different others. Among many different others. You know, one, one of the things I often uh, explain in a course that I teach as well, um, is that the word al-maghrib in the Arabic language comes from the root word gharb. Alright? Now, what's interesting is that the, the, the root of the word means for something to vanish. Something to disappear. Why is the direction of the west called Al-Maghrib by the, by the Arabs? Well, because the sun vanishes in the west. So they called it Maghrib, Al-Gharb. Alright? Similarly though, what's very interesting is that a crow, a crow, the bird, the black bird, crow, in classical Arabic is called Ghurab. Why is that bird called Ghurab? From the root word which means to vanish? Well, because pre-Islamic Arabs, again, before the Prophet ﷺ, like many other different societies, all right, the crow has been the subject of much superstition throughout, throughout history. Many societies have been very superstitious about the crow. They see the crow as an evil omen, as a bringer of death. All right, why? Because it's a scavenger bird. All right, so whenever they would see a crow, they would think death is approaching. So the pre-Islamic Arabs are no different. When they would see a crow fly, they would, they would consider it as a sign that death is coming. Alright? And they would attach superstitions or beliefs to this bird, the crow. And so because they thought that it was a bringer of death, it would bring death, they called it ghurab, ghurab, vanish, vanish, disappear, disappear. Because they did not want death to come. So what I'm trying to explain is that there were a lot of superstitions. There was the worship of idols, there were pockets of Christianity and Judaism, all right? But even the Christianity and the Judaism of that time had become perverted, had, be, had lost its way. We know that the Quran tells us, All right? It tells us about the, the, the rabbis, 
All right, the spiritual leaders amongst Jewish society at that time, that what they would do is that they would alter the tradition. They would change words from places. They would alter the tradition. And they would distort the teachings of their religion. All right, um, and that there was a lot of corruption. That they basically put the Torah aside and they themselves became the source of, uh, of the religion for their people. Alright? And we even find, even if you go and you talk to people of the Jewish tradition, people that are well-schooled within that tradition, they'll tell you that rabbinical law is, is, is the supreme source of law within their tradition. The Torah is almost looked, at, looked on as a, um, with, with a type of spiritual reverence. It just has a symbolic, you know, uh, it, it, is, it has a symbolic type of sacredness. It's very symbolic, it has a certain sacredness, but it's almost just looked back at as a source of inspiration. But the law is rabbinical law. It is decreed, it is decided by the rabbis. Alright, and this is something that the Qur'an talks about that was present at that time. The Christian, Christianity at that time had also been widely been affected. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Qur'an says, لَقَدْ كَفْرَ الَّذِينَ قَالُوا إِنَّ اللَّهَ ثَلَاثَةَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ وَالْمَسِيحُ بْنُ مَرْيَمُ وَلَا تَقُولُوا ثَلَاثَةَ the Qur'an was addressing it at that time. That the majority of even Christians at that time had fallen to, into this predicament of worshipping Isa alayhi salam and, and believing in the Trinity. So even the pockets of Christianity and Judaism that existed within Arabia at that time were again, had been perverted. They were not the original teachings of Musa and Isa but they had been perverted. They had been changed. All right, they had been altered, distorted. Secondly, you primarily, the majority of the people at that time worshipped idols. But it wasn't just simple as worshipping idols. No, no, no. They saw these idols, they had a very weird compromise which justified their, their behavior to themselves. They said, look, we know that we come from a tradition that tells us to worship one God, Allah. Okay, fine, we're okay with that. Why? Because we haven't let go of Allah. We still worship Allah. We still believe in Allah. And that's why when they would be asked who created the heaven and the earth, they Allah. They'll say Allah. But then what happened was, they introduced these idols as dignitaries, as intermediaries, as representatives of Allah, who have been put, of different, who have been put in charge of different things, different issues. All right, whether it be rainfall, or it be childbearing, getting offspring, having children, or whatever, or the crops, and the, 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 uh, whatever else it might be. So these different idols are in charge of these different things and Allah, God Himself, the Supreme Being, has put them in charge of these things. So they're still worthy of veneration and worship and offering devotion, dedication as a channel to God. Alright, this was the perverted belief that they, the, 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 the very unfortunate justification that they present, the compromise that they had. But the problem with that was, was these idols eventually became the object of their soul devotion, dedication. They completely forgot about Allah for a certain time. And that's why in another place in the Qur'an though, when it tells you, when it, when it asks, when, when it tells the Prophet to pose a question to them, alright, that who, who is the one that gives you everything that you have? Who is the one that gives you, you know, um, who, who is the source of all the blessing you have in your life? Then at that time the answer is being fed that tell them it should be Allah, it should be Allah, it should be Allah. Because after a certain point in time, they became completely disconnected. The object, the, the object became the idols themselves, which were only supposed to be the means. And even that was incorrect. But their own compromise was their own doom. Their own compromise did them in. And that was the problem. Alright? So that, that practice existed. But not only that, but then they indulged within that practice. What did they do? They said, okay. Then they took some of these idols and they said, these are bigger idols. These are bigger idols. These need to be second tier gods. So they started indulging into it. And then what do we need to do? We need to take these second tier gods and just like for Allah, we have the Kaaba. We need to designate sacred places of worship where people can go and visit and do tawaf and do all the things like I explained. And that's why they would refer to many of the Arabs that lived in these other places, they would refer to the Kaaba and Makkah as Al-Kaaba Al-Shamiyah. Al-Kaaba Al-Shamiyah. That is the Syrian Kaaba. That is the Kaaba that is in the direction of Al-Sham. Why? Because the, the Kaaba in the direction of Al-Yaman was different. Al-Kaaba Al-Yamaniyah. And so they started indulging, engaging in all these different practices. And then you had all these superstition. 
Then superstition completely took over their day-to-day -day lives. And they started, you know, even making decisions based on superstition. Where does an arrow go? What arrow strikes first? What bird, which direction did the bird fly in? They started doing that. They started taking their money and their wealth. They would take camels and designate them for the gods. They would go and they would make offering to the gods. Alright, not only that, but then people capitalize on this, right? I'm trying to show you how prevalent this became in society and how it began to completely infiltrate every aspect of their lives. Whenever you have this type of a corrupt practice, then you also have people who will, who will exploit it for their own personal gain. All right, and you had that same thing at that time as well. You had people that would then be like soothsayers, kuhan, araf. You would have a kahin, you would have an araf. All right, and what would these people do? These would be people that would, you know, claim to know what the, um, what the, what the will of the gods was. And they would claim to have certain little tricks, certain things that they would read, whether they would reach a scar, read the stars like in, like in Araf, or they would read you know, some of your personal situations, or they would read certain incantations, and they would know what you should do, or they would make recommendations to you, or they would bless you on behalf of the idols and the gods, like a kahin, a soothsayer. And these practices were very prevalent in the time of the Arab. And that's why when the Prophet ﷺ first came with his message, one of the very first reactions was what? That he is a kahin, he's a soothsayer. He reads the stars. Right? And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Wala bi kahin. The Quran is not the word of a kahin. The Prophet ﷺ is not a kahin. Alright? And so that was also very, very prevalent. So when I when anybody would need anything, would need to decide anything, would want to be blessed was dealing with a situation or some circumstances, they would right away go to these people. So you had people exploiting this now, false belief of the people and taking advantage of the people as well. Not only that, but, and one other thing that I didn't mention was, and this wasn't a majority, this actually never caught on. This was present in other parts of the world at that time. This never caught on in Arabian society, but you also had a very small pocket, a very small minority, which was, uh, which was hooked on astrology. Not astronomy, Astro astronomy is just a science of everything Allah's created. Alright, how far is the moon from the earth and the sun and the stars and the planets? Not that. But astrology, like, what, like a, a, a manifestation of it that exists till today is like horoscopes. Alright, horoscopes are a manifestation, reading of the zodiacal signs and things like that. Alright, that is a manifestation of astrology in our time. And I know pretty much it's now at this point in time is just seen as something that is either some, uh, something that, you know, uh, people indulge in for entertainment or either more simple-minded of society who go to, you know, a palm reader and things like that. But nevertheless, you know, some people do take this very seriously. And it, it, it contradicts and it affects a lot of people's beliefs even till today. And that's why the Prophet ﷺ told us to be careful about this as well. And the Prophet ﷺ said that man ata kahina. Or the Prophet ﷺ said, Man arrafan, that whoever goes to these types of people who read the stars or indulge in soothsaying and things like that, then that person, Muhammad. Then that person has disbelieved in that which Muhammad ﷺ came with. He's disbelieved in Islam. So you had, there's, there's one particular thing that's noted about the pre-Islamic history, is that among the Arabs you had a man, he was widely known as Abu Kabsha. Abu Kabsha. This man had traveled to other parts of the world. And he had found them trying to read the stars and engaging in astrology and things like that. He had found these people adhering to these things and believing in these things. So he had brought back this knowledge or this information. He brought it back to the Arabs. And he tried to present it to them. He tried to present it to them that worshipped the stars. Particularly there was one star that he was advocating the worship of amongst pre, in pre-Islamic Arabian society by the name of a shi'ra. He said that there's one big star that everybody worships that is called a shi'ra. We worship that star and based on the pattern of the star and the visibility of the stars and things like that and whatever you know uh, constellations are visible at different times of the year, then based on that we will make our decisions and that will be the will of the gods. Alright? But what ended up happening was that the Arabs, the pre-Islamic Arabs never accepted him. 
And they never accepted this type of worship and this type of belief system that he was presenting to them. So he, for the vast majority of people, he was just dismissed as a crazy person and what he was presenting was not accepted. And when the Prophet ﷺ came, when the Prophet ﷺ brought his message, one of the very first early accusations against the Prophet ﷺ was that some of the people in Mecca, they referred to the Prophet ﷺ as Ibn Abi Kabshah. Ibn Abi Kabshah, he is the son of Abu Kabshah. Why? Because just like he was telling them, stop worshipping all these idols and worship the one supreme being who happens to be a star, a Shi'ara, which was incorrect, completely incorrect. But when the Prophet ﷺ said, stop worshipping all these idols and the sun and the stars and everything, Alright, because you also had pockets in Arabian society that would worship the sons. What they learned from the Majusis, the Zoroastrians in Persia. Alright, so the, when the Prophet said stop worshipping everyone and everything, and worship one Allah alone, they said, oh, Ibn Abi Kabisha, you're the son of Abu Kabisha. You're just like that guy. He wanted us to not worship our idols and worship some sar. So similarly, you just want us to worship your guy. All right? But to refute that claim, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in Surah Najm, وَأَنَّهُ هُوَ رَبُّ الشِّعْرَى وَأَنَّهُ هُوَ رَبُّ الشِّعْرَى That's why Allah says that, no, 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 you got it all wrong. Allah is the Rabb of a shi'ra. Allah is the Rabb of shi'ra. That Muhammad sallallahu doesn't tell you to worship a star called shi'ra. Muhammad sallallahu is... The one who tells you to worship Allah. And who is Allah? Allah is the Rabb. Allah is the creator of that star that some people unfortunately and very wrongfully they worship. They incorrectly worship. Alright? So that was also one of the accusations against the Prophet because of this individual who had tried to bring the worship of a star and tried to bring astrology to the Arabs which they had dismissed and that they had not accepted. So this was, for the most part, this, this pretty much summarizes the, the method of worship in pre-Islamic Arabian society. This, this so far has explained everything wrong that they did. But like I did in the previous session, I also want to highlight what were some remnants? What were some remnants? What were some things that were left over from the practice or the teachings of the prophets of the past that were still present within pre-Islamic Arabian society. That when the Prophet ﷺ brought the proper message to them, there were a few things that they were still doing correctly. There were a few things that they were still doing right. So one of those things was of course, like I mentioned, this very uh, perverse, this very twisted understanding of how their idols at the end of the day were not the ones who were finally solely in charge, but that their idols answered back to Allah. Alright, so this was that very twisted mentality that they had. But you see that it is some form of remnant of the earlier teachings of the Prophet and the Prophets. Now, what was another remnant? Another remnant was that the Kaaba, the holy sanctuary, the Kaaba, they still saw it to be a very sacred place. And even though they still again had that twisted practice where they built mini Kaaba, satellite locations for the Kaaba in different parts of their society, their, their, their area, their region, nevertheless they still saw the Kaaba to be the supreme. Alright, this was the original house of God. They still saw it as such. And they, worshiped, and they, they, they visited, they venerated it, they devoted themselves to it, and they respected it as such. Alright? And that's why they would still make the pilgrimage, they would still do the Hajj. Alright, and they would visit it. And they would visit the other sacred regions around it, like Mina, like Arafah. They would still go and stand in Arafah. They would still go and sleep over in Mina and Muzdalifah. They would still go and visit these places. And they would still observe a type of Hajj. It was a completely distorted form of the Hajj, but nevertheless, this was still, these were still some remnants that were left over. They still saw Safa and Marwa as being sacred places. They still thought that the well of Zamzam, there was something special about it. They still venerated the place, the Maqam of Ibrahim. They still respected the Al-Hajr al-Aswad and would kiss it, alright, for blessing. So these were still some of the remnants that existed, that stayed with them. Alright? And they would do tawaf around the Kaaba. But again, as was the case with so many other things, they twisted it. 
they would twist it. And how did they twist it? That it's mentioned that they saw it to be such a sacred place, such a sacred place, that if you were not from the Quraysh, there was something filthy about you. There was something filthy about you if you're not from the Quraysh. So what did you have to do? When you would come to the Kaaba, when you would visit the Kaaba and you would want to worship the Kaaba, or worship at the Kaaba I should say, alright? What you had to do was you would either have to purchase some of the clothing of the Quraysh. You would have to adorn yourself in the clothing, the libas of the Quraysh. And so obviously now what happened was that for the Quraysh, that became an opportunity to make some money. Alright, they gotta buy our clothes. Let's cash in. So now what they would do is they would sell clothing to these people, the pilgrims, the visitors. And they would charge them exorbitant amounts of money. Alright? And if people could not afford, what was the other option? So that's what you find in the hadith of the Prophet It's mentioned that very unfortunately, people pre-Islamically would worship, would do tawaf at the Kaaba, nude without any clothing on. Because if you could not purchase the, the, the clean clothing of the Quraysh, then what you would have to do is then you would have to do it nude and naked. But you couldn't wear your dirty clothing. Alright, and so that's another thing they would do. The Quran tells us, And then when they do, did, however they would do it, either in the clothing of the Quraysh or without any clothing, then how would they do the tawaf? Muka'an, whistling, tasliyatan, clapping. They would whistle and clap as they went around the Kaaba, and this was their form of ibadah, worship, salah. Like we make dhikr, we make dhikr and dua when we do tawaf today. Alright, what they would do is they would whistle and clap. Alright, so you had remnants, but they would twist everything. Everything was twisted. When they would go and stand in Arafat, same thing they would do, they would remove all their clothing to present themselves. Like we, we, we go in Ihram. Alright, they would go in the Arafah and they would stand before, before the gods to ask and to pray and to worship. But what would they do? They would remove their clothing and they would stand naked, they would stand nude in Arafah. Alright, so you had a lot of these very unfortunate twisted practices. Alright, but serving the Kaaba, cleaning it, taking care of it, giving water to the Hujjaj, these were things that stayed with them. These were remnants. Alright, these were remnants. And they stayed with them, and they saw a lot of virtue in this. But even then, they would twist this. How would they twist it? There would be wars to decide who would clean the Kaaba. There would be wars to decide who would give water to the Hujjaj. Within families, there were civil wars within families, within tribes. And heads of different families within the tribe had fought each other for generations for the right to be able to give water to the Hajjaj, or the right to be able to clean and be caretakers of the Kaaba. Alright, so there was a lot of twisting of these different practices. So even the good that remained with them, there was still a problem with it. Alright? Another thing that was, of, that was very problematic amongst them at that time, in terms of this adherence to some form of the original tradition and religion, but then of course it was a twisted, perverted form of it, was that the Quraysh, the Quraysh, this is what gave prominence to the Quraysh in Arabian society at that time. Because the Quraysh were the inhabitants of Mecca, because they were the caretakers of the Kaaba, because they were the people who gave water to the Hujjaj, the Quraysh held a very special place, uh, like of leadership and of reverence among all the other Arab tribes. The Quraysh were seen as a supreme tribe because they were in control of the Kaaba, they were the ones who lived in Mecca, and they're the ones who gave water to the Hujjaj, and they were the hosts of all the Hujjaj. Alright, and all the rights of Hajj at that time, so they were seen as superior. Alright, so there wasn't a centralized form of government, but if there was anything that was as close to as possible as a central form of government, then it was the Quraysh. Because of these um, advantages, alright, that they had in that society and at that time, uh, amongst those people at that time. Now, now the, the last thing that I wanted to talk about here, in terms of the religion of the pre-Islamic Arabs, the last thing I wanted to touch upon here is, what role did religion play in their lives? 
That's one thing. So now you understand what their religion was, how they went about in their, their religious and spiritual practices and routines, and what it exactly involves, and how it was corrupted. But now overall, what role did religion play? play in their lives. And what I mean by that is something that we can, we can, we can talk about. We, we're very, very familiar with. Like for instance, we live in a widely agnostic society today. Where religion is seen as something to, to still to a lot of people, to some people I should say rather, religion is still something sacred, it's still something important, it's still something that makes up a part of their identity. But it is, it is mostly marginalized when you talk about overall how people live their lives. It doesn't play a major role and a major factor. In fact, that's part of the political scene right now. All right, that's part of the political scene. You have some people who think religion should play a very major role in politics and in running of government and in running of people's lives and society and culture. And then you have a lot of people who think that should not be the case. And that's part of the struggle politically that we see going on in our country right now. So, but, and as Muslims, we know that religion is Religious, religion is something that dictates everything to us in our lives today. Religion is what dictates our culture to us, our family life to us, our economic policy to us. All right, so how we manage our finances to how we live our lives and how we conduct ourselves at home and how we raise our families, our deen is central to everything. All right, so it's different perspectives. So what was the role of religion, spirituality, religion, in pre-Islamic Arabian society. So in pre-Islamic Arabian society, it was completely marginalized. It had a form of like a sacredness, a symbolic sacredness. All right, it was, it was very symbolic, all right, and it had a certain sacredness. But the reason why it was marginalized was there were certain places, certain things within their lives. For instance, if a battle in a war is going on, this is talked about in Surah Tutoba. In the Manasi Uziadatun fil Kufr. Nasi, the practice of Nasiun. Alright, in the Manasi Uziadatun fil Kufr. What that means is that there were certain things within their religion that would dictate major parts of their lives. Alright? For instance, if there was warfare going on, two tribes are, are at war with each other. And certain there were certain sacred months. There were certain sacred months. And if one of the sacred months arrived, and there were two tribes that are at war with each other, they were not allowed to fight during the sacred months. Now that's a problem. But the reason why I say the religion was marginalized, what they would do is they'd say, all right, we, okay, we, we got a solution here. You know, the war is raging on, and this tribe is right about to crush the other tribe, and the war is about to be over, but now the sacred month is arriving, tomorrow, or in a couple of days, and we gotta stop the fighting. But we don't want the fighting to stop. Because the people that we like to win the war, all right, are, have the upper hand right now. So what are we gonna do? This is what we'll do. We're going to delay the month. We're going to delay the month. So let me use English months, just the, the, the solar calendar, the months that we use. Let me just use that as an example so that you know, people don't get lost in the example, in the analogy. All right, so let's just say, for example's sake, October is a sacred month. Battle's going on right now. We're about to win the battle, but October's about to be here in a week or in four days. That's a problem. If we can push right through in about two weeks, we should have this wrapped up. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna delay October and we're gonna bring November forward because November is not a sacred month. So we're gonna bring November forward. We're gonna go ahead, go ahead and have November 1st. And then once we wrap up the battle, because we, we should have it wrapped up in about two weeks, then we will mark and celebrate and observe October afterwards. But when next year comes around, we'll put it back into its place. Well, what happens? The battle goes for six weeks, not two weeks. So what do we got to do? Okay, no problem, we got this under control. The problem is that December is a sacred month as well. But January is not. So we brought November forward and put October behind. Now we'll go ahead and we'll bring January forward and we'll put December back. So let's have October, let's have January, then we'll have November and then we'll have December. It's a complete disaster. All right? And when the next year comes around, then nobody can remember, did we forward December, January, or was it, or was it not? And after a certain point in time, it's a complete disaster. 
I, that's just one example. One example of how religion was marginalized. Where they still allowed it a certain symbolic sacredness. But they would very conveniently switch it around and move it around if they had to. In order to get what they wanted. In order to achieve if, what they wanted to achieve. Alright, and that's, how, that's the role of religion in pre-Islamic Arabian society. It was marginalized. It was symbolic at best. That's all it was. It was very ceremonial. It was very ritual and symbolic at best. And for a lot of people, it wasn't even that anymore. That was even for more cultured among society. Leadership. Because why? Because of religion, being, being able to be the figureheads of religion is what allowed them to maintain their control. So they're the ones who would even be concerned about this stuff even at a very ceremonial level. At a very symbolic level. But the vast majority of people at that time, like we see in, the, uh, with, in a lot of societies even today, they didn't even care. It would even wasn't even a consideration. And that was the practical role of religion in pre-Islamic Arabian society. Alright? And, and I've pulled here a couple of narrations. A couple of narrations which are just, you know, which are a great example of how, you know, even that symbolic ceremonial form of the religion, how even that was a complete and total joke. It was a travesty. I give you that one example of the switching of the calendar. I pulled a couple of narrations here, which, which really, really, you know, established this, this, this fact. That it was, a, they, it was a travesty, it was a joke, it was a mockery. Of a mockery of a religion. Alright? There's a narration which tells us that there was a man by the name in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad. This is from the Musnad of Ahmad. A man by the name of Asaib bin Abdullah. Asaib bin Abdullah. This man had built a, had constructed, you know, had carved an idol. What he would do, and this was the idol that his family and his tribe and his people would worship. And he, was, he, had, he had carved it and he was responsible for it. He was in charge of it. What he would like to do in order to honor this idol is he would take, again, he would go to, that, to those camels that were dedicated. Their milk was dedicated to the idols. He would go and he would milk those camels, those she camels. He would bring this milk that was sacred milk for the idol now. And what he would do is he would come and he would pour this milk onto the idol. He would pour that milk on the idol as an offering to the idol. So he would come and he would pour all this milk. So you had all these she camels running around that were sacred. Nobody could use their milk. So you'd have to milk them though. He would bring all this milk and he would pour it. Every day he would come and he would pour milk all over the idol and rub milk on the idol as an offering to the idol. The, the narration of Muslim Ahmad says that what would then happen later at night after everybody went home, was that dogs would come. And when dogs would come, they would come and they would lick the idol. Because of the milk that was on the idol. They would come and they would lick the idol. Every single day. And they, whatever milk was left over, they would place it there in front of the idol. So the dogs would come, they would drink the milk, and they would lick the idol. And then after drinking all that milk, and licking the idol, when they would have to urinate, then they would urinate on the idol. They would urinate on the idol. This was seen by people. This was observed by people in this generation in the Muslim of, of Imam Ahmad. Rahimahullah. That this was how, what a travesty, even their completely bogus form of religion. Even how it was a complete mockery and a joke to them even. Even they made a joke out of the joke of a religion that they had. It was nothing. Alright? There's another very interesting narration which is mentioned in the books of Sirah. There was a tribe by the name of Banu Hanifa. Banu Hanifa. All right, which was a tribe at that time. Well, this tribe, they made an idol out of Hais. They made an idol out of Hais. Hais is the name of a type of sweet that people would eat at that time, kind of like what we would call halwa. All right, it was a type of halwa, a type of sweet, a type of you know, cake, if you will. All right, for our context, it was like a cake. It was a type of cake. So they, what they did was they carved an idol out of cake. Alright? They carved an idol out of cake, out of type of halwa at that time. And so this was their tradition. So the, what they would do is they would carve it, they would build this big beautiful idol out of cake. 
or sweet or whatever that was made out of dates and the fat of animals and they would put some milk in there and they would, they would make this big old idol, all right? And they would worship it for quite some time until it would go bad or it would start to rot or the insects would eat away at it or whatever, then they would build another one. So they built this idol out of this cake, if you will. And then what happened was a drought hit their region. A drought hit their region. And those people eventually got so hungry and such severe starvation came to them that they eventually went and ate that idol that they had made out of all this dates and food and cake and sweets and everything that's idle that they had constructed, they went there and they ate it. And somebody, all right, a poet who was there at that time saw these people doing this. He saw them eating their idol. And he, he said in a couple of poets, he's in, a couple of, in couplets, in a, in a poem, he said, أَكَلَتْ حَنِيفَةُ رَبَّهَا زَمَنَ التَّقَحُّمِ وَالْمَجَاعَةِ لم يحضروا من ربهم سوء العواقب والتباع. He said that the people of Hanifa they ate their Rabb, they ate their Lord. In a time of severe starvation and drought, they were not afraid of their Lord. How horrible of a followers were these people, and how horrible and how pathetic of a Rabb did they worship? Like how pathetic was what that which they worshipped and how pathetic of followers were these people that their rub did not even strike that much fear into their hearts that they had no problem going and eating him. And how pathetic of followers were these people that they would actually go and eat that which they worshipped. But that was the role of religion. That was literally the status of spirituality at the time before the Prophet ﷺ. I want you to understand that. I want you to fully grasp that. Because when you grasp that, when you understand that, just a complete spiritual, you know, um, decaying that had occurred, the total spiritual deterioration that had occurred at that time, then and only then you, can you fully appreciate who the Prophet ﷺ was and what he was able to achieve and accomplish. That he raised, he trained, he taught the ultimate generation of Muslims and believers and mu'minun and muwahidun. The greatest people to ever walk this earth. People that the Allah says about them. Rijalun sadaqu ma'ahadullaha People who fulfilled their promise to Allah, their covenant with God. Men, people, a society that fulfilled the covenant that they had with God. That how those people were brought, were originally these type of people, these same people. These same people. Alright? Then and only then can you fully appreciate that. And, and I wanted to talk here at the very end in just a couple of minutes about who, you know, how was this even accomplished? That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the Prophet as rahmatul lil alameen. You know the Prophet was able to accomplish this by inspiring people. The Prophet didn't just show up and start talking, you know, completely bad about their idols. Yes, he said this is wrong. But he didn't just show up and, you know, completely trash them. That, that wasn't the method, but he inspired them. He motivated them. He won them over. As Hassan bin Thabit said about the Prophet ﷺ, He says that, and more excellent than you, my eyes have never seen such a man. My eyes have never seen anyone more amazing than you. And no woman has ever, give, ever given birth to anyone more beautiful and amazing than you. He said, you were created free from any shortcomings and faults. It's as if you were created as you desired, as you would have wanted. It's like Allah made you custom, made you by demand. You were created customized. And that's how the Prophet inspired people. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in the Quran, Ya ayyuhan nasu qad ja'akum burhanun min rabbikum wa anzalna ilaykum nuran mubinan. That a very clear proof and evidence came to you from your Lord and not just that, but Allah revealed to you a nur, a light. This was a time of complete darkness. This was a time of complete darkness. Complete darkness. 
Right? There was no nur, there was no enlightenment of the heart. Illumination of the heart that existed at this time. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent the Prophet as what? And this Quran, the divine message, and the, the, the presenter of this divine message, Muhammad Rasulullah Allah sent it as a nur that was mubeen. A nur that would spread, a nur that was clarifying, a nur that would make sense and clarify and spread this light to the hearts of people. The Prophet that's why he's referred to in the Quran as Sirajan Muniran. A lamp, a lantern whose light spreads. It glows and it catches on to others. And the Prophet was sent to inspire people. It was a mercy, it was a blessing from Allah, and it guided people onto the straight path. And like the people said, you know, like the people would say to Nuh and to other prophets before them, that he's just a man who just wants to prove himself to be superior to you. But that wasn't the case. The Prophet of Allah was a nur, was a light. He enlightened people, he inspired people, he motivated people. And he presented to them the Quran, the Quran which was a nur of the hearts. And it inspired enlightened people. It changed people from the inside out. And that's why the first introduction was to Allah. Who is Allah? How amazing is Allah? And the first introduction to the Prophet was what? Innaka la ala. It was the character of the Prophet This was in the opinion of many of the scholars of the Qur'an, this was the second revelation. It wasn't just, just the knowledge, it just wasn't talk, but it was that khuluq and that akhlaq. Coupled with the Qur'an, which changed the hearts of the people, which inspired the people, and allowed the people to better themselves. So we'll go ahead and inshallah stop here for today. This was a, a very thorough discussion on the religion, the role of religion, and even the religion that was present before Islam in pre-Islamic Arabian society. Next week, what we will talk about is, we will talk really briefly about the Hunafa. There, was, there were literally an, a, a handful of people. There was literally a handful of people. People you can count on one hand. At the most, like seven, eight names are mentioned in the books of history. That were present at the time of the Prophet when, when the Prophet was born, there were there were literally a handful of people, half a dozen people, who worshipped properly. So we're still worshiping one Allah. We'll talk a little bit about them, and then we will talk about the year in which the Prophet was born, the year of the elephant, and that entire incident and situation, scenario, what exactly transpired, what happened. And then we'll start talking about the family of the Prophet, the family background of the Prophet. And then inshallah, the week after that, we will actually go to talking about the birth of the Prophet and we'll begin his actual life from there inshallah. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us a proper understanding and realization of who the Messenger of Allah was. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to develop love for the Messenger of Allah and allow to follow in his footsteps and his ultimate example and by means of that become beloved to Allah. Jazakumullah khairan. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi subhanakallah wa bihamdik. Nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nasakhfiruka wa natubu ilayk.